Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton with a look at Jamaica's unique sound system scene which spurred the creation of ska, reggae, and dub and directly influenced the creation of hip-hop. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. to let it roll i'm your host nate wilcox and this is one of our special techno roll episodes with ryan harkness ryan welcome to the show thanks for having me and today we turn our attentions to jamaica or reggae we're discussing the book last night a dj saved my life the history of the disc jockey by bill brewster and frank broughton and they've got a chapter called reggae but it's really more jamaica than reggae it gets, uh, you know, as far as this book being very DJ centric, dub is where a lot of the action really starts to happen. And then dub is also uh, much more formative in uh, what kind of develops in the UK as well. And I would argue that ska is underserved here because it's the first music that is driven by the needs of the sound system and the DJ. But we'll get to that. They open it up with some pretty bold claims for Jamaica and reggae. They call a they say, when it was reborn independent of Britain's ind- imperial rule in Jamaica, the DJ was king. Then they say that uh, reggae is one of the most forward-thinking genres in history. Reggae was the first style to value recorded music more than live performances. And again, I'd say that was true of ska before reggae. And, um, you know, it's something I didn't really understand. I had assumed always that ska and reggae developed the way any other form of instrumental rock. Because if you listen to the records, <clears throat> it's clearly R&B or rock and roll derived band music. It's it's a band of instrumentalists playing with singers over it. So you think you hear ska and you think, well, that's an interesting Jamaican take on R&B. But it's not anything incredibly radical. Then you read into how it was developed, and it's totally crazy radical. It it it, it was backwards engineered uh, by by producers who needed records for their sound systems, and and we'll get to that. But before they make another of other claims about Jamaica, that Jamaica was the first place that developed the sound system. That's the freestanding, you know, PA and speakers and and turntable. And microphone that is now a you know a hallmark of EDM all around the world. They developed the sound clash, and that's when you know two systems would gather in the same spot and and make and let the dancers choose you know which which DJ, which toaster, which sound system had the best stuff. They developed toasting, which we we know in the states as rapping, which is somebody talking over a record in a rhythmic fashion. They also developed the version, which is a prototype of the remix and then the dub mix which is a radical remix and and a total alteration almost a deconstruction of the sound so that's five pretty major developments in the history of the dj that all come from this one small poor relatively backward island did that blow your mind too 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the crazy things, uh, anytime you get uh, into a club, there's going to be usually a pioneer DJM 500 or above. And uh, on on that is a is an effects um, mixer controller. And half the effects on that controller come from dub, uh, the, the flange, the uh, the echo, uh, the filters and uh, and the, the standard configuration of a of a DJ mixer being, you know, the three, the mids, the lows and the highs. It also comes from dub. So um, it's pretty crazy when you when you kind of realize that this this you know what what I thought at the time the first time I read this book when I was you know much younger I don't even think I read the reggae chapter because I was just like ah like you know this doesn't this doesn't matter to me at all I'm so far away from this completely no pay no mind to do it at all and now you realize how much of an impact it has on music as a whole through the remix and DJing as a whole through all of the things that came out through dub and dub production that basically turned into proto DJing absolutely and again I'd argue it goes way back before dub it's it's um a totally totally fascinating but the the they say most of the modern DJ's arsenal was developed in Jamaica, the remix, the personality DJ, which they call um, the selector. They, they, they have a totally backwards terminology in Jamaica and from the rest of the world. It's totally fine for what they're doing, but it's it's opposite of the way most people. Well, it's similar to what it. was going on on the radio where they said the disc jockey, uh, you know, uh, was the guy who basically jockeyed between the tracks talking and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's it's different, but it's the same. It kind of bounced back and forth a little bit. Exactly. And, and you'll, well, when we talk about hip hop, we're running the same thing with DJ Hollywood was actually what you would call a forefather of the MC or master of ceremonies. And in Jamaica, they call that person the toaster and, and the, or the DJ and, and also the DJ in this book, they spell it out, whereas they abbreviate DJ most uses. And then, and then they've got the selector, which is what we think of as the DJ, the person who picks out the records to play and does the mixes and all the effects uh, live there. But they also developed the concept of the star producer. You've got people like King Tubby, Lee Scratch Perry, on and on, um, whose entire you know raison d'etre was what they could do in the studio and, and the kind of sounds they could get. And, and it goes back to people like Phil Spector and, you know, Holland Osho, Holland at Motown, but this has taken it to a whole new level where you don't even have to work with the musicians, just give them the tapes and these guys can work miracles and create entirely new things. Um, also the uh, use of exclusive records. This was the first place where studios would cut records just to be played as acetates by these sound systems. And it was only when they realized just how popular these recordings were that they started to put them out for sale. It was initially just to draw people to their sound systems to buy booze and some goat curry and you know and and pack the house or the outdoor space and then they also the the emphasis on drums and bass in the foreground of the sound totally for the needs of the dancers if you're if you're playing to a huge crowd in an outdoor arena you've got to be booming the bass so people can hear the beat and dance to it the use of echo and other sound effects and you know volume treble and bass dropouts etc and the one thing they didn't develop there though that's always been a one turntable island they, they don't do the dual turntables, so that means there's no blending, there's no beat matching, and no scratching. So those innovations come from other places. And, and again, they emphasize that it's not that everybody imitated Jamaica. It's, you know, some of this stuff was discovered independently in other places. It's just Jamaica did it first, and that's documented and verified. Um, then the, they get into how and why 
Jamaica was unique and, 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 and how this happened. And it's, it's just totally a historical thing. And it's something I've talked to Ted Joya with uh, about his book, Subversive Music, A Subversive History, that you so often see music innovation happens on the peripheries of cultures and empires. It very rarely happens in the, in the center of an empire where things are controlled. It's, it's, it's people that nobody cares about that are doing crazy things and getting away with it because nobody cares. And Jamaica had a unique set of circumstances that caused this to happen. First off, it's incredibly poor and or incredibly unequal in 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 its economic in its wealth distribution the the descendants of the british colonialists and the and the upper caste you know the half the mixed race um elite dominated the wealth on the island and so there literally were not enough musicians in jamaica after world war ii to have swing bands for everybody who wanted to dance to swing music you you had the elite of the island monopolizing what was left tons of the musicians immigrated or were drafted into the war and then, you know, when when the regular folk did get a band, the band wanted to take long intermissions and drink beer and eat curry. And, you know, they didn't get into it in this book, but a couple of documentaries I watched, they talk about how the sound system snuck in as an intermission break for the bands. And pretty soon the band was redundant and, and dismissed and sent on their way. And there's no union here to protect uh, the musicians like there were in other places. So. You know, the, the sound system emerges as this folk source, this way for people to hear music and dance. And these are people who couldn't afford records. And jukeboxes weren't big in Jamaica either. That was a solution that African-Americans, you know, resorted to in the Mississippi Delta and other places where they couldn't necessarily afford big bands. But in Jamaica, they didn't even have that option. So, you know, it's this totally unique backwater environment. Um, last thing before I let you, you go, since I'm monopolizing the mic, is that there was also a local folk music, Mento, that um, makes a mark, and it's, it's a worthwhile folk music, but compared to like salsa and samba and calypso in places like Cuba and Puerto Rico and, and you know, Trinidad and other islands, they had a relatively underdeveloped folk system. So when World War II ended and they wanted booming dynamic sounds that reflected the dynamism of the post-war era, American R&B was the place to go. They couldn't hear it on their local radio station because it was a BBC style, very button-down, top-down, controlled, you know, radio system, but they could hear these big, high-powered stations coming out of the U.S. So you had stations uh, coming from Miami and Nashville and New Orleans that were giving them the sound that they wanted to hear, which is totally American R&B. Thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting coming out of the Northern Soul chapter that we talked about last week and how it kind of ended up eating itself because at a certain point there was no more records. Uh, they were they were they were digging through older an older genre of Motown that was no longer popular and being made. And once they ran out of records, that was it. Now, these guys, they had a specific sound that they liked. And uh, once once, you know, the limits of their ability to go to America and, and keep on grabbing all of these records uh, was was limited or, or tapped out, they started recording music on their own. And then the local influence uh, seeped in through the way that the musicians all played, creating its own sound. And I thought that was very interesting because in the northern soul scene, it was a situation where anything that wasn't authentic 
you know, uh, American Motown music was rejected and therefore the scene kind of fell apart. And uh, in Jamaica, they actually took the leap and they allowed they allowed things to change. They accepted their own local influence on things. They and and they built upon that. And I mean, the the proof is in the pudding. Reggae is still going strong. Dub turned into one of the most formative uh, moments in, uh, you know, UK dance somehow. Um, so I thought that was pretty wild. And then just uh, in, in sound systems, uh, sound systems being giving you the freedom to just roll down the street and set something up. And in, in my underground rave days, we had a couple of crews that had sound systems and they were the ones that were able to, to really keep a scene rolling where we were, you know, in between venues and in between companies that would rent us sound systems. The, the underground renegade sound system crews were the ones that were setting up wherever the hell they felt like it and, and pulling out their crew every single week. So I feel like there's a, there's an element uh, to the sound system that's very underground and is very renegade. And uh, I appreciate that a lot about, about probably the origins of the scene back before anybody really knew what the hell was going on. Cool. And let's hear a little bit of early. This is actually an American song that was adopted uh, as a theme song by one of the sound systems. And it was one of the first times when a label was steamed off. And the song, which is, this is Willis Jackson's later for Gator, but it was known in Jamaica as the Coxone Hop. Hop, or as it was known originally when it was recorded in America, Willis Jackson's Later for Gator. And it's named the Coxon Hop because Coxon Dodd, um, who was one of the sound system kings, one of the three kings of, of the sound system, um, Sir Coxon Dodd, as he called himself, uh, operated the downbeat sound system. He was one of the three kings of the peak era in the 50s of the sound systems, one of the real pioneers. And you're, you were talking about how Northern Soul had run out of new music. And we did talk about there were some attempts to, to create new Northern Soul type records in England in the 70s. And some of them were hits, but they were super stale and corny and were kind of immediately mocked. And that didn't happen in Jamaica. And it's, it's a totally fascinating uh, history. There's some great CD compilations that uh, one called The Roots of Sky I've really enjoyed that takes compiles a lot of the American R&B that was especially influential in Jamaica. Louis Jordan is super dominant in this. He had a number of songs that directly reference Caribbean rhythms that were very popular there, but also his his creation of rhythm and blues. I mean, he's the guy, the father of rhythm and blues, who pioneered the kind of big beat, small group sound that would go on to dominate the 50s and beyond in America. And and so many artists like that, but they really liked the New Orleans style shuffles and, and a lot of the beats that came out of Memphis. And, and these kind of, when you listen to that stuff, you can hear the ska beat kind of uh, under uh, uh, bubbling under. And then when the Jamaicans get their hands on it and they have to make their own records, they literally turn the beat around and they put the emphasis on the two and the four instead of the one and the three or maybe vice versa. I'm not a technical musician, but it's it's really fascinating to hear the the way the Jamaicans heard the beat. You know, if you're familiar with ska and the, and, and reggae and, and the way the 
the beat is backwards. When you hear that old American R&B and you listen for that, you can feel what they were feeling. And, it, and it's a really fascinating creation. And they don't go into a, a lot in the book, but a couple of documentaries I watched describe how they would hire these musicians who are making their living playing sophisticated jazz for basically white audiences in the wealthy parts of Kingston and, and Jamaica. They come down to the studios and cut ska records, which isn't allowed on the radio. You can't make a living playing it live. So it's totally a DJ driven thing. Like they need this new music for the sound system. So they record it in the studio. And at first they're just making it um, just to play as exclusives, but pretty quickly they form record labels. We should mention the, they know who the first sound system was. It was a guy named Tom Wong who called himself the great Sebastian. And in the 1940s, he already had a sound system up. And the model is exported to London by 1954 by a guy named Duke Venn. So this connection between uh, Jamaica and London and England is going to be very important in musical history. And it has a big influence on English music all the way through to the modern era. And it's a big part of why English dance music, I think, has stayed more independent of American music than you might think. It's, it gave it a freedom that that the Beatles and, and other early British artists didn't have. They had to basically look at America for everything, the Rolling Stones in the same way. But just a few years later, bands in England are looking at, at Jamaican rhythms, you know, kind of having their own access to, to African rhythms, just a step removed in much the way American artists do. Anyway, that we've got the development of the sound systems, the sound clash happens already in the 40s. There's descriptions in the book of, of the great Sebastian throwing down with rival sound systems. But by the time you get to the big three, and that's Sir Cox and Dodd that we've talked about, Duke Reed, who was apparently just an utter thug, and then King Edwards, uh, who um, had the giant, Duke Reed had the Trojan system, and, and Duke Reed goes on to form Trojan Records, which is one of the legendary reggae and ska record labels. And these guys battled it out all through uh, the, the 50s and 60s. And Sometimes literally, not in a uh, hypothetical or, or just like music sense. They would actually like, uh, you know, everything would go wrong, go sideways. They would they would jump each other and they would uh, apparently they'd, there'd be rocks getting chucked into crowds and stuff like that to try and to try and uh, wreck the vibe and stuff. It was uh, things things got ugly sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and this relationship between music and the underworld uh, that we've talked about many times on the show is once again coming out, uh, you know, in full force. And this is very much something that's happening in the ghetto with the Jamaican underclass and working class. And yeah, it's bare knuckle. And, and you know, one of the great uh, Jamaican producers, Prince Buster, starts out as an enforcer for Cox and Dodd trying to help balance things out vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Duke Reed, who's, you know, the goon squad, basically. And, and they, you know, have to have to get dirty. And, and it's not just who's got the best music and who's got the best beer and who's got the best curried goat. It's you know, who can mess up whose sound system, who has the enforcers. Uh, you know, there's stories about Duke Reed picking out young guys, young burly dudes, getting them drunk, giving them free shots and sending them into his rival's dance and knowing that they're going to bust the place up and send people his way to buy his beer. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's unruly and wild. And very early on, the DJ grabs the mic and, and, 
you know, there's the people start toasting over the records. They start making instrumental versions of the records as soon as they're recording stuff on their own. Initially, it's one track stuff. And so, you know, they've got the vocal track and the instrumental track on the same thing. But Cox and Dodd brings back a two track system from England. And once they have that, they start putting instrumental versions on the B side. And that's just a, a way to save money. Why, why do another song when you can, you know, cut the song you think is going to be a hit? wipe the vocals off of it and put the instrumental on the B side. But then when they get the, to the sound system, they put that B side on and the DJ can talk over it and, and the crowds went crazy for it. And so there's a guy, um, Winston Count Machuki, uh, one of several people in this, we already talked about Tom Wong of Asian descent. So there's this ethnic mix. There's always, there's always uh, some seasoning in, in the mix when we talk about musical innovation and Jamaica is no exception, but uh, Count Machuki is the first DJ to toast over records. And um, he also is somebody who was contributing in sort of a pre-human, proto-human beatbox way, but he's on Scatolite's records, the early ska, uh, the legendary ska band. And he's in there adding these chick to chick noises and we'll hear one in a minute. And so it's, it's immediately something that, the crowd is digging when they're live and seeing these sound systems and that influences the, the production of the records. Pretty soon they're bringing the DJ in to toast on the records. And eventually by the early seventies, you've got uh, somebody like Hugh Roy who actually has the number one, two and three record in Jamaica at one point in 1970, which is just this incredible accomplishment. You've got uh, a bunch of producers taking those two tracks and, uh, and and taking the backing track and reusing specific backings over and over and over again. It's kind of uh, the beginning of, of how the Amen break became uh, such a big thing. At this point, there were similar situations where you had you would have one one kind of running loop that would become infamous and used over and over and over again. So. Uh, and, and that was something that would get pumped out like 30, 40 times, depending on the reaction to the track and uh, the crowds would get knowledgeable to these specific running riffs and these riffs becoming uh, basically uh, kind of uh, very, very important um, uh, foundations for, for a whole period of time during that whole scene. Yeah, and they wouldn't just recycle the loops of the bass lick or the drum riff. They would actually, when they recorded live with bands, bassists and drummers would just swipe that rhythm. And so it it was a very, in the book they say, a very African view of music. Or just that's the way folk music works. People recycle, share, reconfigure this stuff. And and copyright was not having a big influence on the scene at the time at all. And let's hear uh, one of those Scatolite songs that has uh, Count Michecki, um making his kuchunk noises over the top. This is the Scatolites doing rocket ship. was the Scatolites doing a rocket ship, early 60s band. And, and ska was synonymous with the independence of Jamaica. And again, they don't get into the politics of it too much, but Britain gave up 
Jamaica as a colonial possession in the early 60s. Prince Margaret visited the island and, and abdicated on behalf of her mother, the queen. And there was this explosion of enthusiasm and optimism, and ska was the soundtrack to that. And suddenly ska records started to be hits in England, and then and then it was okay to play ska in Jamaica. Then you could have records on Jamaican radio, um, but it was it was it was a it was already a de facto takeover. Ska had already taken over with the people and the sound systems and the streets, so it was sort of a formality when ska was was suddenly on the charts and and being played in the sound systems and. And again, I know why they didn't talk about ska that much, and and especially in the '90s, reggae was seen as the bigger, uh, more globally commercially successful. But ska in the interim is, I would argue, right now the more lively form, even though it's very watered down. And a lot of people who consider themselves ska fans probably don't even have any idea it came from Jamaica. But you've got you know the original ska explosion in the early '60s in Jamaica, with concurrent hits in the UK, and even a couple of them make the American charts. Then you have a ska revival in the late 70s in England after the punk explosion. You have what's known as the two-tone movement, which was a very consciously anti-racist movement that featured bands, often integrated bands like the Specials, um, Madness, The Beat, known in the US as the English Beat. revive ska and it's happening at the same time as the mod revival and other things so it was a feature of that era that there's a big retro component at the same time you've got synth pop exploding in a, in a new and innovative direction you've got the ska revival going on and then ska is revived again in the states in the 80s and 90s you know bands like operation ivy and offspring and um no effects and uh, what's Gwen Stefani's band? No doubt. And and now you're on to your third or fourth generation of ska revivals. So it's really fascinating to me the way ska has had this undying life. And I think um, there was something there. There was something uniquely vital about the way they turned the beat around and the optimism that it signified. But the optimism didn't last. The new government, it was one of those meet the new boss, same as the old boss type situations. And within a few years, things had soured. And reggae is kind of the rock to Ska's rock and roll. It's the heavier, more serious, self-consciously artistic sound. And, you know, we've talked with Edward about the birth of reggae coming out of these studios that are that made Ska and are feeding the sound systems. And the same thing happens, you know, Bob Marley and the Whalers hanging around the studio looking to sing on tracks and bringing their songs to the producers. They start making reggae records and then they backfill. And, and and hire a band to play England and tour and become kind of a rock band. And, and, you know, growing up, I always thought of Bob Marley as basically a rock musician. He played a type of rock and roll called reggae, you know, he, but they had guitar, bass, drums, uh, keyboards, background singers, you know, all the regular stuff. And I had no idea that it was it was a studio built genre like it is and so that that's um i think it's right that they focus in this book on the dj aspects of it and don't get so much into the sky and reggae but i just yeah ska being ska being very band driven and and a lot of the music that or at least the book focusing on the dj element of it of uh the producers bringing in bands uh it wasn't bands coming into the studio and recording their own music. The, the bands were, were, were there at the behest of the producer who wanted them to play a specific thing that was being built 
basically from the ground up for these records for these sound systems so it was very backwards and very completely unusual from 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 what we normally saw and i think that's why kind of ska gets overlooked because ska is you know actual bands playing songs that they write and these not these these tracks stay relatively the same while the book is more interested in the development of of, of this kind of backwards format where not only are they coming in and they're they're creating music just using the talents of live artists to get the groove down but also then stripping it down to its uh stripping it down to nothing and building it back up in the form of reggae and dub yeah it doesn't have the deconstruction process but it does it was engineered for the sound systems like the music there were no ska bands organically touring jamaica in the early 60s they would they would take these jazz musicians that were playing to wealthy white crowds let them play their version of R&B and it turns into blue beat and then ska and then and setting it loose. So it, it, they kind of conflate the terms reggae and ska. But yeah, you're right. They they do want to get the they want to get to the DJ. They want to focus on the producers. They want to they want to focus on on these innovations and get to dub. So it's it's it totally makes sense um, the way they do it in the book. But I I just found it totally fascinating. It's just it's it's my fascination with this creation of music is just the way these elements are stirred and you know every every scene has a different recipe but these certain traits seem to pop up over and over again and definitely one of them is being in a backwater whether it's liverpool or memphis you know or new orleans it's not generally uh, and even when it is new york it's the bronx or harlem or greenwich village or the lower east side it's it's not necessarily you know the bright glittering lights where innovation happens, although the disco chapter will challenge that a little bit as it has a lot of Manhattan glitter there. Um, but then this this concept of the version becomes more and more of a thing where they're putting out multiple versions of each song and, and recycling these elements from each, each piece and it becomes more and more uh, you know, the studio as an instrument. And that's something that I was just uh, doing a show about Nine Inch Nails and talking about how Trent Reznor used the studio as an instrument. And so what's your take on what they mean by that, the studio as an instrument? Well, you got uh, guys like King Tubby who come in, uh, who is uh, one of the most important people in, in, in my books as far as uh, the, this entire scene, who just understands uh, not just not just uh, the studio as a, as a recording element, but, but he understands like the entire way that the electronics works. He understands the way that the sound system works. So he's uh, he's not only he's not only looking at it as a way to record music, but he's looking at ways that he can manipulate the music through the studio equipment and through the sound systems that he's playing. Uh, one of the one of the big things that you'll kind of notice, I feel, from reggae and from this point forward is the amount of bass that gets put out. Everything seems kind of thin before this era. And then all of a sudden uh, with reggae and dub, the bass is put right up front and it's 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 jacked up like uh, one of those old walkmans with the mega bass button turned on and this is uh, this is the effects of the guys in the studios uh just uh being willing to take what was originally just a concept of recording music and just putting it out as is and manipulating it and and really getting the most out of out of it and reusing it and transforming it now, originally as a money-saving device but in in the end uh expanding creativity widely yeah, it's totally fascinating. And let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll come back and hear some of this stuff. 
Ryan, as a DJ, like you talk about how you skipped over this chapter the first time you read it. Looking back now that you have read it and, and processed this, as a DJ, how much do you feel like Jamaican music and these innovations impacted you and the music you heard and played? Um, I mean, it, it's hard to say uh, just, just because I do come from uh, from a place of ignorance where, where, you know, I was active between maybe like uh, 2000 and 2010 around. And uh, and it's basically only been in the last five years that I've, I've kind of turned around and started uh, looking past, you know, dance floor bangers and, and opening my eyes to everything, everything in between musically. So, uh, I, you know, I try to I, if I tried to go back there and remember what I was thinking at the time, I feel like it would just be kind of a lie I'm telling myself. So it's it's hard to it's hard to really put myself in that place. But I know that I, I, I definitely ignored a lot of it. I, I don't know if I'd say I straight up denied it. But, you know, looking back, uh, I feel like. Uh, you know, maybe there was uh, some some cultural uh, racism that that just ignored the con- contributions that just uh, didn't pay attention to to anything that had gone on from from there or acknowledged it. I listened to a lot of the early uh, UK electronic music like Left Field and uh, Underworld, and there was a bunch of dub elements in that that I just never followed up on or paid attention to. Uh, so it was very very unsophisticated at the time for me. I didn't I didn't really understand what the hell was going on so and i feel like i missed out on a lot of it uh, of what was happening and I, I missed out on the opportunity to go a lot deeper than i did just because of my ignorance yeah i'm guilty of the same thing although i can remember going to see a reggae group in austin in the late 80s and we had you know very watered down reggae i don't want to diss the the local reggae acts but this was not a hotbed of reggae that was you know impacting the world but it was a popular genre at the time and i can remember once there was a dj um there who i believe was jamaican and i remember noticing the way he was jacking with the sound system you know was playing the record but turning the volume up and down, moving it from speaker to speaker, putting booming echo, dropping everything out except the bass. I thought he was playing a dub mix. And a friend of mine asked the guy, where's the dub mix? Where can I get that? And he's like, that was just me, Jack, with the record. So that's, I think, kind of the essence of the Jamaican GJ. And, and we'll hear when we talk about proto-disco and uh, next week that um, – that wasn't unique to Jamaica. I mean, anybody who's playing records and has these knobs to, to diddle with is going to take that temptation and, and watch what the crowd does and, you know, do it. But like they say, the, this stuff was innovated in Jamaica and happened there first. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit more music. And this is Hugh Roy. Uh, this label, on the label of this record, it was spelled Hugh Roy, like H-U-G-H, but it's more commonly known as U Roy, the letter U, followed by Roy. And this is Rule the Nation, one of three songs he had at the top of the Jamaican charts at the same time in 1970. Yeah, you are from again. And that was U. Roy's Rule the Nation, one of a trinity of songs, along with Wake the Town, 
and wear you to the ball uh, that he had at the top of the Jamaican charts at the same time in 1970. And so, you know, by that time, the toaster is explicitly a star. And this is long before hip hop. This is a full decade before the first rap records are going to be dropped. And those will use a live band to back him. Uroy's doing the whole thing. You've got a DJ speaking over recorded music that was that had already been used for other songs. So the Jamaicans are way, way out ahead. And, you know, they make a pretty strong case that that Jamaica had this outsized impact. Not only is it a direct antecedent of hip hop, DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bambata, two of the three DJs considered the Holy Trinity of Bronx hip hop were of Caribbean descent, you know, and Cool Herc had seen the sound systems in Jamaica as a kid. And that's what he was trying to bring back. Now he added the breakbeat element and he added, you know, the two turntables, which was how, uh, it was done in the discos of New York at the time. So, you know, he's doing record blending and stuff like that. And Grandmaster Flash comes along quickly and events scratching. So, you know, hip hop, hip hop wasn't fully formed in Jamaica, but it's very clearly an antecedent of it. And there's an argument, you know, in this book, they say, uh, they quote uh, Jeff Chang, who's one of the scholars of hip hop saying, you know, jazz had New Orleans the blues had the Mississippi Delta and hip hop has Jamaica. I think a lot of other people will turn that around and say, no, hip hop has the Bronx, but just the fact that Jamaica is in the discussion has to be concluded is a sign, you know, of just how impactful this stuff was. And then we talked about the fact that you Roy was willing to, to basically speak over, speak over a record on the record and, and have that be considered musically acceptable is, uh, is quite uh, an, an achievement, you know, like uh, I think up until that point, if you weren't singing, then, then good luck, you know, it's not going to get on the record. And at this point it's a kind of spoken word steps in poetry hip hop, it all just kind of flows from there. But uh, you, you, can, you kind of have to imagine um, how unusual that would be uh, for, for them to actually go ahead and, and you know, record that on the record. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It, it was a big step. And, and one story that we left out that I should mention was that they talk about Kamachuki and one of the first times he was talking over the mic and he got a hold of a magazine, an American magazine that had a list of American jive terms. And he had heard some of these American DJs uh, talking jive over the radio. And, you know, we talked about that in a previous episode, how there was almost a form of blackface that white DJs could learn this lingo and imitate it. And the Jamaicans are doing the same thing and the, even more like third hand by, by printed word. It's, uh, it's just crazy, you know, to think about this stuff and the way that a backwater can become um, an innovator and, and, and the site of so much innovation. And yet it's this, it only happens because it's such a backwater. Nobody cares. The record industry wasn't watching what was going on. It's a tiny market. Um, so they were free to, to do what the people wanted to hear. And that's what they did. And, you know, in addition to founding hip hop, you know, this is the place where the, the producer, becomes an artist and a star. And we, we'd seen that in America previously with like Phil Spector, but not many others. And this tradition of the Beatles and Bob Dylan, where you, the band comes in or the act comes in and writes their own songs and plays their own instruments and does their own arrangements and, you know, eliminates so much of the apparatus of the studio that had been developed, you know, and perfected in the Motown assembly line. 
that had been thrown out almost everywhere else. And Jamaica is the first place where the producer gets not only the reputation as the artiste, but the mad scientist. And this is the place where you've got the DJ or the produ- you know, the DJ slash producer in the studio making these crazy dub mixes, doing these sound effects that they've been killing people with at the sound system and um, making these radically different records. And let's go ahead and hear uh, this is King Tubby, the flag dub. King Tubby doing the flag dub, which is one of these records he created from other people's recordings, radically remixed, uh, recorded, re-recorded some elements, but you can you can hear the elements there. It's it's got the echo, it's got the booming bass, it you know, it's it's a dub record. It's 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 crazy stuff. And I remember hearing I was first exposed to this by by way of the clash and other British artists, and dub was totally alien to me. And I couldn't understand the point of it. When you're listening to things on the jam box, on the cassette deck, you want to get back to the punk rock. But the first time I heard dub played on a big fat sound system and and felt the bass, it was like, ah, I get it. And that echoed voice, it sounds like the prophet of doom. And it's, it's just an epic creation. And I think we've seen, you know, uh, dub has had a lasting impact in addition to the impact of ska that we already discussed and in addition to the impact of reggae and and the one thing they don't go into is you know bob marley and reggae become the first really global superstar since the beatles and the first african uh, descended superstar you know the uh, first black man in music to achieve the kind of fame that muhammad ali had a decade earlier so you can't really understate the bigness of bob marley and it's fascinating to have a whole chapter and i don't if they mention Bob Marley's name, it's just a mention. So, you know, there's so much going on in Jamaica at the time that they can cut out the biggest superstar and the biggest genre. Um, you know, and they, they acknowledge that the principles of sound manipulation that were being innovated by dub are ignored by the original disco DJs and producers. But, but the first wave of post-disco producers, Larry Levin, Arthur Russell, and others, are quickly incorporating these dub innovations. And then when we get to Acid House and beyond Acid House, Jamaican influence is going to rear its head again and again with the whole drums and bass and jungle genres of EDM are absolutely patently uh, Jamaican derived. And and then the UK version of hip hop grime, which takes basically EDM backing and puts rapping over it. Again, massive, obvious Jamaican influence. Final thoughts on Jamaica, Ryan. Yeah, I think it's hard to understate just how important it was for for Britain, ironically. It's the, uh, you know, the colonizers end up getting colonized musically uh, I mean, uh, a ton of uh, even the Brit rock today still has that stabbing guitar riff that that comes out of rock steady and ska. And uh, I'm sure once we go a bit further ahead and we, we start getting into the acid house and, uh, you know, what was basically kind of put into the shelves at record stores and CD stores as electronica, so much of that was dub influenced and uh, and and came from producers who who would listen to dub and were inspired by 
and uh, creatively to to build on that and go forward from that. So, I mean, it really is a point, you know, uh, disco obviously being a massive, massively important uh, part towards dance music and house and everything else like that. But I feel like, uh, again, I didn't even realize it at the time. I didn't even look into it. I, I willfully ignored the place of, of reggae dub in Jamaica in, in the, the landscape of, of the evolution of dance music before. And now, now I can't get enough of it. It's, it's like you said, uh, you know, you, you spend a couple seconds listening to dub and you say, what the hell is this? But uh, you spend a little time with it and you kind of get friendly with it and you hear it out on a big system. Maybe, you know, smoke a little bit of weed and check it out. And all of a sudden it starts to make a lot more sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, we haven't talked about the, the drug influence, but uh, Rasta is openly um, uh, evangelical about the use of marijuana as a sacrament. And, and Rasta was a totally um, – and, and I should have introduced this concept earlier, but they, t- they talk about it in the book. But Rasta was total pariahs. Like they were absolutely outside the system and, and not allowed to have any – social voice in Jamaica until these sound systems become so popular and the government is clearly the first independent government is clearly not fulfilling everyone's dreams and hopes and and in this period of late 60s despair when reggae is being developed Rosses are welcomed welcomed in and become the figureheads and become the face of Jamaica for many people around the world. Bob Marley's dreadlocks, that's Rasta and, you know, goes on to influence the bad brains and all this stuff. So, yeah, there's always this element of of religion and drugs that you have to have to think about when you talk about music. And next time we'll be back to talk about disco roots with Ryan Harkness in our special techno roll version of let it roll thanks a bunch follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let it roll podcast.com nate and ryan will be back next week to discuss the roots of disco in new york when a wave of innovative djs created techniques like beat matching and blending that combined with their eclectic and thrilling musical choices to create a utopian dancer's paradise let it roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 